Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Tyler Cash. I, uh, if I haven't met you, um, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, happy to have you and um, looking forward to getting to know you. Uh, I am the one of the, the pastors and elders of this body of believers, and uh, we're grateful that you're with us. We are studying the gospel according to John, and today we're finishing up chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 43 through 51, so if you have a Bible, I hope you do, uh, turn with me there. If you don't have one, we have some copies in the back. You can grab one. You can raise your hand. An usher will, will bring you one if you need one, but I'll be studying from the ESV as we usually do here uh, at our gatherings. Uh, as you're turning there to John chapter 1, I uh, just wanted to uh, let you know um, if you participated in our baby bottle campaign for the Blue Ridge Pregnancy Center, I uh, just wanted to uh, give a report. So I received a card from them last week that uh, was just thanking everyone, thanking CCF for uh, their contribution. And in our uh, baby bottles, uh, we were able to give $850. So praise God. Yeah, that's thank you for um, just contributing. Uh, Lord willing, we'll continue to uh, partner with them and uh, we'll continue to be able to do that each and every year as we're given the opportunity. So continue to pray for the Blue Ridge Pregnancy Center and the work that they are doing here in uh, Lynchburg to help to save the lives of the unborn and share the gospel to each and every mom that uh, walks through the doors. It's not just uh, the lives of the babies, but they are intentional with uh, just uh, sharing the love of Christ and inviting uh, those men and women into a relationship with Christ. Uh, well, relationship with God through Christ, uh, to be more theologically correct there. So, John chapter 1, 43 through 51. <clears throat> I'm going to read this for us, and uh, we will pray and ask the Lord uh, for his help. Verse 43 reads this, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you. You will see heaven opened and the angels, angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let us pray. Father, we desperately need your help. We need your help to 
understand. We need your help to clearly receive and respond to what we have before us. Lord, I ask that each and every person that walked in here today would leave here different than they walked in. Whether that's those that walked in weary and heavy laden, Lord, I pray that they would find their rest in Christ. Those that may have walked in haughty and prideful, pray, Lord, that you would meet them, confront them, and show them the humility of Christ. I pray, Father, that you would help us as a body of believers to grow in the knowledge of your word so that we would then be inclined to focus on the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we ask what we know not, you would teach us. What we are not, you would make us. And what we have not, you would give us by your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name. God's people said, amen. Well, last week, we looked at the positive effects of faithfully reporting the message that Christ is the Messiah. And as we finish chapter one today, we continue to see the dramatic effect the God-man, Jesus Christ, has on those that he meets. John is clearly communicated in this first chapter that Jesus is the one that deserves our total attention, our our total allegiance even, because of his preexistence, his perfection, his power, his glory, and his care. And before we transition to chapter 2, John shows us yet another reason that Jesus is the only Savior and the only person, place, or thing that's worth following. Here in our text, we see three reasons presented to solidify the truth that Jesus is the one worthy to follow. We give you these three as an outline of our text today. Number one, Jesus is the promised Savior. Jesus is the promised Savior. Number two, Jesus is the sovereign Savior. Jesus is the sovereign Savior. And then third, we will see Jesus is the sufficient Savior. He is the sufficient Savior. Now let me preface this message by saying that a Christian's identity is found in being in Christ. Our ultimate identity is in Christ. That is New Testament language, right? We are safe and secure in the finished work of Christ, okay? Our salvation is not banked on our ability to follow Jesus Christ. It's not banked on our efforts in what we do to follow. The call is not to come and do what Christ did. The call is come and receive what has been done. Furthermore, we see that in this text and beyond, it is that Jesus 
is the one who calls men and women to follow him anyway. It, it, it starts with Christ. We will see this point later in chapter 15, verse 16. You don't have to turn there, but uh, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask, it, at, ask the Father in my name, he may give you. So we, we, we find our identity in Christ what he has done, and because of his work, he has then given us the ability to do what he has called us to do. Nevertheless, follow me is language that is sometimes used in Scripture, and it is the language used here as this initial invitation to follow Jesus is given to these men. So let's look at our text here. First, we see Jesus as the promised Savior, verse 43. So the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So let's stop there. So the scene is this, right? Jesus has now gained a a few followers uh, or disciples as they have not been commissioned yet as apostles. They are, uh, they are learning, they're following. The invitation here is to, to follow me, learn from me, be a student, be a learner of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. And from our text, we know at this point the crew is Jesus, John, the gospel writer, Andrew and Peter. John tells us that this is the day after that Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. Remember, we looked at that last week. And then as he has the, this group of followers now, he decides to make his way to Galilee. Along the way, they apparently pass through the town of Bethsaida, which was a reasonable stop on the way to Galilee. We also see that Bethsaida was the birthplace of Andrew and Peter. So it's likely they had some connections in this town, right? It would kind of be like if, if you were taking a road trip. And maybe it was a long road trip and you decided to stop. Maybe you're going down to Florida. You've got some friends in Raleigh. And you say, hey, it's a good stop. I'll, I'll stop there and I'll visit with my friends. I've got some connections. I'll get some rest for the evening. So this is what's happening here. Now, Bethsaida was a small town on a hillside on the northeastern end of the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't considered a place full of great thinkers or philosophers. Instead, it was a blue-collar town full of fishermen. It was commonly referred to as Fishertown. That's a place I'd like to go because I like to fish. But we read here that Jesus found Philip. We don't know the exact circumstances to this finding. All John cares to tell us is that Jesus finds Philip. And when he finds him, he proceeds to tell Philip, hey, follow me. Here we see the authority of our Lord. 
Jesus does not bargain with Philip. Jesus does not get anyone else involved here. This is a call from God himself. Robert Rolock comments, This teaches us that Christ is able to call anyone whom he pleases into the kingdom of heaven without the ministry either of angel or man, end quote. This is a particular and explicit example of Jesus fulfilling his mission to seek and to save the lost. It's also important for us to stop and take notice that three of the men that Jesus first called to follow him were average guys. They were blue-collar workers. They were fishermen. Got to take notice here. Jesus did not set out to find the world's top influencers. He, he didn't uh, find the best speakers in the area. He didn't start with the most powerful and the wealthiest men he could find. Instead, we see Jesus use these average men found in humble places with humble occupations to literally turn the world upside down. Too often, I think Christians uh, hold fast to an unhealthy misconception that says the pathway to reaching the world is getting the world's best. Right? You know, you hear about somebody like, you know, Kanye West. That was a big thing. Oh, it, oh, is he a Christian, right? And now if he's a Christian, then like that will just change everything. Or, you know, Justin Bieber. If he's, if he's really a Christian, then, oh, my goodness, it would just have such an impact on the world. And while we should pray for both of these men's salvation, and we should pray that influencers are saved, we must realize that the normative way of earthly kingdom expansion is ordinary people being faithful in their daily activities. That is how the Lord works. He doesn't need the world's best. Clearly, Jesus' primary evangelism strategy is not centered on the accolades and achievements of the world. Instead, his concern seems to center on showing his power as the supreme power that generates real, true change. Paul carries the same idea when writing to the church in Corinth. Uh, turn with me, I want you to see this, to 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. 1 Corinthians, it's continue over through the New Testament. <clears throat> It's right before 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. And here's what he says here. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to what? Worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then he goes on, right, in verse 30, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, once again we see the reason why here, let the one who boasts, what? Boast in the Lord. Now that's not to say that God doesn't use powerful people. Uh, Proverbs 21, 1 reminds us of this, right? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it however he wills. See, God does what he wants, how he wants, when he wants. We must take notice of this. So here we see that Jesus has called Philip. He's told him, hey, Follow me. Turn to me. Learn from me. And then we read verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, once again, we don't know every detail. We don't know exactly what happened in these events that followed Jesus' call to Philip. All we know is that when Jesus told Philip, follow me, Philip apparently did. And again, we see a similar ingredient of discipleship here. We talked about this last week. Just like Andrew, after his re response to the message, what does he go on to do? He goes on to report the message. He reports what he has just been shown. And brothers and sisters, once again, we cannot miss this important reminder. The gospel work you do in your personal relationships is usually the most important and most effective means of evangelism you will ever do. We must ensure we do not neglect the relationships God has given us in search for bigger stages. We have to share the gospel with those that we know. We must be faithful in these areas. We must be faithful with what the Lord has placed in our hands. The relationships that we have been given. And here we see, right, Philip's message. It doesn't change. He says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Here, Philip puts forth Jesus as the promised Savior. Notice what he says, right? He says, we've found the one that they wrote about. We, we found the one that Moses spoke of. This implies that Philip and his friend Nathaniel had some understanding of the Old Testament. And based on their understanding, they anticipated the arrival 
of a Messiah, of a Savior here. Listen, you've got to remember, all of Scripture points to Christ. All of Scripture is relevant for us today. We must not unhitch the Old Testament, as it's been recommended by some. One historic church article puts it like this. The Old Testament is not contrary to the New. For both in the Old Testament and the New, everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ. Period. And Philip describes Jesus in the common way that a first century Palestine would have been identified here. He says the name of his village, right, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he says the name of his earthly father, son of Joseph. So he's speaking a little uh, broader and bigger and deeper than he actually realizes. We know that Joseph was not Jesus' real father, but this is the practice that Philip knew. It's what he knew to do. So he stuck with it. But nevertheless, what's important for us to see is that Philip reports this message to his friend. Essentially telling them that, hey, we have found the Savior, Jesus Christ. But Nathaniel's a little skeptical here. Look at verse 46. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth. Well, what a wonderful compliment, right? You know, it'd be like someone, say, you know, you, you telling someone where you're from um, and them saying, what, can uh, anything good come out of Lynchburg, Virginia? It wouldn't be the best compliment there. Nathaniel suggests that Nazareth is full of undesirable second-class citizens. Indeed, Nazareth was a very obscure town. It wasn't known for its positive contribution to the world and definitely would not have been the place that would have come to mind when speaking of the Messiah here. Again, we see that God does not need to depend on worldly credentials. His plan of salvation is the only plan he needs. Nathaniel is skeptic, and he asks a very forward question here. Look at Philip's response. What does Philip say to him? He says, come and see. Now, brothers and sisters, here we have the fundamental textbook answer Christians should give when dealing with skeptics. Come and see. In other words, come see Jesus. For us, it's come see Jesus as given to us through the scriptures. Come and look for yourself. Right? Don't, don't take my word for it. Come and see who Jesus is. Let me encourage you that one of the wisest things you can do when dealing with an unbeliever is ask them to read the Bible with you. Let the word do the work that it promises to do. 
Too often we want to argue with unbelievers. We want to try to prove our point through philosophical means. Or sometimes people even try to manipulate Christianity to somebody. But here we see Philip invite Nathaniel to do the one thing that most certainly has the power to change his life. Come and see. Come and meet the Savior. Come and see the Savior for yourself. And then he presents Jesus. Here is the sovereign Savior. You see the power of Jesus on display. We see Jesus Christ here presented and shown as the one who knows all. Look at verse 46, well, 47, excuse me. So Nathaniel's going after Philip's invitation, and we read, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him. And he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. So what does he mean by this? For one, it was not uncommon for Palestinian Jews to reference one another as Israelites. But the part that should cause most reflection is that Jesus constructs a character identification before there's one word of conversation. He sees him coming. And he says, there is a man of no deceit. Now what Jesus means here is that Nathaniel was a man that did not have duplicitous motives. He was willing to come and examine Jesus and get to the truth. He wasn't manipulative. He wasn't deceitful here. We can also dig a little deeper theologically here. We can look back to Jacob and Esau. If you recall, uh, Jacob was the deceiver who stole the birthright from Esau, right? He, he manipulated, he deceived him. And he was known as the deceiver until when? So the Lord changed his heart, made him new, transformed his character, changed his name to Israel. Uh, we can also look at Psalm 32 here. We can see some Old Testament theology playing out here, right? This is my favorite psalm. It's the psalm that the Lord used to save me. And it says this, verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against the Lord, whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit is no deceit. So Jesus is essentially telling Nathaniel, hey, you were worthy of the blessing of salvation. You are a, a man who is a, a, a true Israel. There is no deceit here. Uh, quick note here, most uh, reputable scholars would agree that Nathaniel is the personal name of the disciple Bartholomew. Okay, there are several reasons for this, uh, conclusions that I would agree with. 
Uh, so I think we can confidently say that this is the story of Bartholomew's conversion. We don't see Nathaniel used uh, in the list of disciples. But r- regardless, we see that the Lord works here in a way that draws Nathaniel to himself. And then we read in verse 48, Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, well, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So Jesus has gone from displaying his sovereign knowledge of Nathaniel's internal condition by saying, hey, here's the character of, of this man. He is a, a man of, with no deceit to now displaying his sovereign knowledge of his external condition. Brothers and sisters, let this be a reminder to us all that Jesus knows you and I inside and out. He knows who you are. He knows where you go. And he knows what you do. Beloved, there is no hiding from Jesus. We try and hide time and time again. We, we try to hide the things that we don't want him to see. We try to hide the, the thoughts that, that come to our minds. But it never, ever, ever works. It's like an ant trying to carry an elephant. It ain't going to happen. He knows us. He knows everything about us. And we would greatly profit if we would spend less time trying to hide out of fear of exposure and more time running to the one who has paid the price For every sin we are afraid to expose. We come to him. There's no hiding. We confess. We we, we commune with the Lord. And then we receive the forgiveness that has been offered through the substitutionary atonement. Of our Savior. See, he's died the death that our sins deserve. He's taken our place. He's suffered at our cost. He has stood in our stead. And he finished the work. It is done. So we must be a people that, that run Quickly, with eagerness, with zeal to the one who bore the curse. There are many speculations here to the reason for the fig tree's reference. In the Old Testament, a fig tree is symbolic for prosperity and blessing. So this could show blessing for Nathaniel, uh, sometimes in the Old Testament, it's connected to prayer and thanksgiving to God. 
could show that Nathaniel was considered an Old Testament believer, that he did believe in the, the promises of God. Once again, in this narrative, we don't know the exact reasons. John doesn't give us a further um, instruction here of what exactly was happening. All he tells us is that Nathaniel was there and that Jesus knew he was there. But regardless of the specific reason, I think the point that John is trying to communicate is that Jesus has supernatural, sovereign knowledge of Nathaniel. And this impacted Nathaniel. Look at verse 49. Nathaniel answered him. So he responds to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So very quickly in our text, Nathaniel has gone from skeptic to now claiming Jesus as his teacher, right? He, he's calling him rabbi. He's saying, hey, I'm going to attach myself to you, and I'm going to learn from you. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to live life with you. And then he also proclaims Jesus as the Son of God and the King of Israel. I mean, what a dramatic change here. What a shift. J.C. Ryle comments, these words are the outburst of a heart convinced at once that Jesus was the Messiah, end quote. He is overjoyed here, and such is the case for anyone who truly meets Jesus Christ as the one who has come to save them from the relentless despairing grip of sin and death. When we really see Christ for who he is, we will do nothing but respond with joy. Nathaniel calls Jesus the Son of God, which signified the intimate and unique relationship between God the Son and God the Father. And by calling Jesus the King of Israel, he is depicting Jesus as the true Savior King promised to Israel. And listen, remember, right, at this stage, Nathaniel doesn't even know the full extent of these terms. He doesn't even know everything there is to know. He will indeed grow in his knowledge, his understanding of what these claims are. But he's correctly acknowledged Jesus here as the sovereign Savior who has come to seek and save the lost. And then in 50, Jesus answered him. Look there with me. He says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? He asks him this question here. And then he goes on. He says, you will see greater things than these. Jesus says, that's not it. That's not all there is to see. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You know my inside. You know who I am. 
you know where I'm at. He says, yeah, know everything about everyone. But if you thought that was something, wait and see what's to come. He says, in other words, don't follow me because of one miracle. We'll see later that sometimes people seek the miracle. They seek the stuff that, that, that happens, the, the miracle that external that God does, rather than seeing Christ for himself. He says, don't just follow me because of that. Follow me because there is much more in store for all who do. Jesus is surely being presented here as the promised Savior and the sovereign Savior. And we close our time by seeing Jesus as the sufficient Savior here. 51, he said to him, right? So he said, hey, there, there's more to come. And then 51, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, brothers and sisters, here's a phenomenal statement worthy of consideration. Uh, this is the first introduction to the double amens, or as the ESV translates, the truly truly's. Uh, this statement means, listen, you can guarantee it. This is steadfast. This is sure to be true. When we see these words, we see an added mark of authenticity here. It's important to note that although Jesus is addressing Nathaniel, the you will see of the vision is actually plural. Meaning that this promise is for all those who were there and who would come to follow. First, I want to show us just real quick where the imagery is drawn from, and then we'll further explain as we close what it means. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 28. That's the uh, first book of your Bible, Genesis chapter 28. Uh, start in verse 10 here. I'll read this. So this is after uh, Jacob had stolen Esau's birthright. He's, he's now fled his home. He, he's living in fear. He's, he's running from the repercussions and consequences that uh, he thought were, were coming if he would stay around. And so here we read, right, in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And that can also be translated uh, staircase. Not, don't, don't necessarily always think of a, a ladder, but you can think of a staircase there. But it was set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were what? 
ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, and to the north, to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then verse 15 here. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised to you. And then in verse 16, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. There is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Let me stop there. So here Yahweh himself appeared promising Jacob the blessing of Abraham. Jacob responded, right? Like, this is the gate of heaven. This is the the, the ladder, the, the access point, the flight of steps. What Jacob saw here represents a point of connection between heaven and earth saw this as, okay, this will be the access point for our people. But here, Jesus Christ puts himself in place of this point of access. Essentially, what Jesus is saying here is that he alone will be the connection between heaven and earth. There is no other way. Here, by connecting this story that these men would have been very familiar with, he addresses the blessing of Abraham, a blessing that will be sufficiently satisfied fully and completely in and through Jesus Christ. In addition to the obvious connections to Genesis 28, the idea of heaven opened and the reference to the Son of Man in John 1, 58 also calls to mind the vision of Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. Write that down. You don't have to turn there right now, but I want you to look that up later. I'll read this for us. Daniel's having a vision. I, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Therefore, in verse 51, Jesus suggests to Nathanael, the others present and to us today, that he alone will be the sufficient connection between heaven and earth. 
through him the blessing of Abraham that was passed down to Isaac and Jacob will be realized. Listen, Jesus tells these men, Jesus tells us that he is all we need. He is it. He tells them here that he is the one worth following because only through him will they get the true salvation that they desire. The true salvation that they need. This was a monumental day for these men. It was a day that they were compelled to leave the world behind and follow Jesus to glory. And now as we will further learn, the path to glory is often paved with hardships. There will be troubles and trials of many kinds. But Jesus Christ has promised all that follow him will get abundantly more than they can imagine and that they will ever lose. So, brothers and sisters, as we today are reminded that Jesus Christ himself is the promised Savior. He is the sovereign Savior. And he is the all-sufficient Savior who is worthy of following. What are we going to do with that? The vision of our church is very simple, right? We aim to make disciples who are deeply devoted to the glory of God and in turn devoted to one another. Right? We, we, we see God and his glory and, and in turn we will be known by our love for one another. We will evangelize. We will share the good news of Christ with those that we come in contact with. And brothers and sisters, we can do no better to accomplish this than by being a people who follow the model of the Apostle Paul as he tells the church in Corinth, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. May we be a people dedicated to surrender in all that Christ has for us, elevating him above worldly accolades, worldly achievements, our own desires, and truly committed to finding our identity in what he has done for us, and in turn, what he has called us to do. It's my prayer for us. It's our hope for us as a church. And I think it's the way that we will truly have the most impact here in this city. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love, for your kindness, for gentle reminders that you alone are the one who is worthy of our affection, our praise, our allegiance. I pray, Father, for anyone in this room right now who is not 
put their complete and utter trust in you. I pray, Lord, you would soften their hearts in this moment, that you would draw them to yourself by your grace, your mercy, that they would respond to the call to leave it all behind and to pursue the one who can truly satisfy everything they need. Lord, help us to be a people that live with audacity, with zeal, with courage, with boldness to speak the truth in love every opportunity we are given. We pray that in Christ's name.